Good morning, church. Great to see everybody. For those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago when I preached, and those of you who may be guests this morning, the preacher here usually and normally doesn't wear a hat or fedora, and he can't sing like Frank Sinatra. I can tell you that. Um, But I had a little surgery here on my forehead, and this looks better than without, trust me. So uh, I hope that you'll listen to the words and not be so impressed by the visual, all right? Um, But I have decided that when the surgery is over, and I do get the stitches out this Friday and the little bandage goes away, um, I've decided I'm probably going to keep wearing a hat, not when I preach, but I am amazed at how many compliments I get on these hats. (laughs) I mean, it has been cool. Even with Sandra, when I was at her, she was like, ooh, that's a cool hat. So anyway, it's been fun. And you know what? When you have a hat on that gets a compliment, it opens a conversation. Did you know that? I mean, it does. And uh, I've had some really, really cool conversations with people in the last three weeks since wearing these hats, uh, just simply because I have this hat on. And I don't know them. They just say, that's a really cool hat. And I say, thank you. And I'm like, I can tell you where I got it if you want it. And I mean, it just goes from there. So it's been fun. It really has. I've enjoyed it. Hey, I want to mention a couple of things to you that are our prayer requests. They're in here, prayer needs that we have in the bulletin on a regular basis. But I especially want to bring some things to our attention because there's some good things that are happening in our church because of prayer. Um, we need to keep Judy Linder and her family in, the, in our prayers. She lost her daughter. Uh, Mandy's mother passed away. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Mandy is recently engaged. Is she even here this morning? I, don't, I didn't see her. Uh, Judy's in, in some rehab stuff. So that family is in great need of our prayers. A lot of transitions there. So please keep them in, our, in your prayers. I'm excited to see Howard Cox with us this morning. He has, he has not had the best few weeks, so we're excited that he's here. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, there's a guy sitting on the back row with his mother, Brian and Marianne. Are, are, we're thrilled to have you guys. It's been a long time since you were here. We're just excited you're able to be with us. I know mom is doing better today or you wouldn't be here, but we're so excited to see you guys. Our brother Bob Crawford has had some great success with his, his treatments. We're excited for that. There's just a lot of things for us to be prayerful and excited about. There really are. God is answering prayers and he's touching the lives of people. And then the little gal that just sat down right here in the row in the middle of the aisle, I think she's expecting again. And I think you guys are leaving us going like, are you moving or something? Uh, this summer. Yeah, this summer. Okay, so we have you for 12 more months, right? We wish. Now, I know they're going to get transferred out of here in a few months, which is what happens when military people come our way and stay in the military. They seem to move around for some reason. I don't get that, but that's what they do. But we're excited for you guys, excited for the new baby, the new home, wherever that's going to be. So we're, we're excited for you as well. Um, Ken and Judy are flying home today. They've been on a little cruise vacationing. Um, Doug and Nancy are traveling in a couple of weeks, going to Texas for 90th birthday of her dad. There's just a lot of cool things happening in this church, and I just want us to be prayerful and mindful of those things and and continue to be in prayer for them as as we uh, enter into this new year. How many of you were here last week for Aaron's sermon? Most of you were? Good. Um, I watched it. I was able to see a replay of it online. I appreciate so much the content and the sermon and topic, the new beginnings. And I wasn't going to talk about new beginnings or, or uh, the new year, but he had a great sermon. And I want to I talk about something that has a little bit of related message because oftentimes this time of year, it's the new year, and many of us think about, okay, New Year's resolutions. Any of you at least thought of it? Two. It's a great plan. Yeah, th- these two right here did. Good for you. 
Um, you know, as you get older, New Year's resolutions don't mean quite as much as they did maybe where you, when you were uh, younger and working and things like that. But there's something about a new year and a new beginning that does mean something to us. And, and whether we realize it or not, we do kind of recommit to some things. Um, has anyone joined a gym yet? No one's raising their hands, and you probably wouldn't even if you had, because uh, we don't want to ask you in three weeks, are you still going? Or better yet, did you ever even go the first time after you signed up? Because I can tell you from personal experience, uh, there have been more than two or three gyms in my experience of life who have my money and never got my time in, in, in the seat. I never showed up. You ever, you ever done something like that? Planet Hollywood, or not Planet Hollywood, what's that? Planet something? Planet Fitness. Yeah, Planet Hollywood was a movie thing, right? Yeah. Anyway, Planet Fitness got my money for a year and a half. I forgot. <laughs> I mean, 10 bucks a month, you know? I mean, out of sight, out of mind, you do the auto draft thing, and, you know, if you never really look at your... Ch I, I balance my checking account. Don't want to be embarrassed by my bankers here, but um, it's just one of those things. We do things like that. We just do things like that. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about how giving and receiving fits in this whole world of new beginnings and, and starting over and looking at ourselves. You know, one of the interesting things that we have to contend with as people is the fact that we're not always engaged in our conversations with other people and even conversations with ourselves. And I'm not talking about walking around the house and talking to yourself. Maybe you do that sometimes, and if you do, that's okay. Um, it's, it's interesting. I find myself talking to myself sometimes when I'm driving because it's better than yelling at the person in the other car. Um, but, but there are conversations that we're having all the time. And when we're talking with somebody, there's more than one conversation going on. You, do, do you realize that? It's not just the conversation between me and Aaron when, it's, when there's a, a dialogue and he and I are talking. It's not just one conversation. There are other conversations that are going on in, in my mind. And some of the, sometimes the conversation goes like this. I wonder what he thinks about what I'm saying. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Uh, or maybe you're having this conversation. I wonder how I look right now. Am I looking okay? I'm wearing a hat. Guess why? I think I look a little weird. And some of you would not be able to sit through this sermon if you saw the rest of me. Because it doesn't look very pleasant. We have conversations all the time. And this conversation I want to have with you this morning is important because I want us to really think about what we're trying to do. And more importantly, I want us to think about how... Uh, not how, but what our motives are and what we're trying to do. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the story of the Tower of Babel. You guys remember that story? This is where all the people have come together and they decide they're going to build this great tower into the heavens and reach up to the gods, right? All of a sudden, God looks down upon them and he looks upon them and he realizes what they're about to do. And what does he do? Confounds the languages and the people disperse and they find who they can talk to and they move on, right? But there's an amazing statement that God makes in the middle of that story when he recognizes what these people are about to do. He makes this statement about them. He says, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Now I want you to think about the gravity of that statement. The God who created these people, us, the God who created us made this statement. Nothing they plan will be impossible for them. I want you to think about that. Think about the ramifications of what God has said. Think about the power that's in that statement that he makes about his own creation. He looked at us and he said, nothing they plan is impossible. So what have you planned? 
See, that's the tougher part. What have you planned? Now, there, there's an old expression, if you, if you don't have a plan for anything, you won't accomplish anything either. And that's okay if that's all you want. And then there's also that side of things where we plan all of these things, but we plan things and we don't really bring God into the middle of the plan. And that's really what I want us to talk about this morning, because a lot of things that we set our hearts on and set our minds to do, if God's not in the middle of it, it just doesn't work out very well. So giving and receiving are important. They're very, very important. And I'm not sure that we can actually receive anything from God unless we're willing to give something to somebody else or to give to Him. And I'm not sure that we're going to be able to give unless we understand what this whole thing of receiving is. Have you ever been blessed with a gift from someone? Someone comes to you kind of unexpectedly, out of the blue, unbeknownst to you, and they give you something or they offer to give you something that's really, really kind of nice. Or maybe it's a gift of money. Have you ever had someone do something to you that was unexpected? What is the human natural response when someone tries to do something for us that's kind of over the top and above and beyond? What's our natural response? For most people, it says, oh, you don't have to do that. No, I, you really don't. It's too much. You don't have to do that. You ever felt like that? All of us probably have. Guess what we're doing when we act like that? We're denying someone else the opportunity to receive a blessing from God because guess what? They're trying to bless you. If they're trying to extend a blessing to you, why would you deny them the opportunity to extend a blessing? You get what I'm saying? So this giving and receiving, the way that we go about doing this, especially as we think about things that are coming this year, things that are going to happen this year, maybe for you, maybe for business, maybe for this church. When we think about those things, it's important to see some of the things that Jesus says about asking and receiving and giving. We just had read for us Matthew 7. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. Now, is that an absolute? Think about it. Is it an absolute? If you're seeking, are you going to find? And see, uh, some of you are sitting there with that blank stare on your face like, what in the world are you talking about? Some of you are doing this. Some of you are just like, I don't, I'm not sure. And that's the challenge. That's the human challenge that we have. Because a lot of times, a lot of times, when you and I seek after something, when we ask for something, when we're seeking for it, when, even when we're knocking on the doors, there's a part of us that's constantly wondering and in doubt. And we wonder if this is really what God is going to do. Jesus continues and everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. So this sums up the law and the prophets. So the reality is, as we come into this season of giving and receiving, we have to approach it without any doubts as to what we're trying to do. Jesus said in Matthew 21, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what's been done to the fig tree, remember he cursed the fig tree and it died, but also you could say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Hmm. How's that working out for you? I want you to think about what you're doing when you ask God for anything. I want you to stop for a few moments and I want you to reflect upon your motives and the intent 
about why you're attempting to do anything. There's another expression in the Bible that goes something like this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it what? As if you're doing it to God, right? To honor God. So what does that omit? And what are we allowed to leave out? See, there's this whole thing about how we live our lives that is so all-encompassing and beyond sometimes what we're comfortable with if we're truly going to live in the way that God wants us to live. He continues on. He says, if any of you lacks, this is in James chapter 1. James write this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind, that person shouldn't expect to receive, it, receive anything from the Lord. So tell me again what it was you were trying to accomplish this year. And what is it that you're looking forward to? And what is it that you're seeking? Is there doubt in your mind? The gentleman I'm acquainted with, a friend of mine, lives up in Northern California, Dan Takini. He's a great teacher, great mentor. Done a lot of training with him over the last several years. Recently I saw a video that Dan posted, and he was talking about how that oftentimes when we think about things that we want to do, we compare it with something that we have done in the past. We want to be better at. Make sense? We want to have a little bit more. We want to change some things. And what happens a lot of times is when we begin looking at things from that perspective, what we're really doing is we're kind of holding on to the past to see how it's going to measure up to what we're going to do in the future. And the challenge that Dan makes in some of his teachings is that he says, you know what, why don't you stop trying to compare yourself with what happened in the past? And why don't you just set a benchmark out here as to what you want to do regardless of what happened in the past? Because guess what? You can't change anything back there. And just because that happened back there doesn't mean that that is what is going to determine what's going to happen in the future. So stop comparing it. Where would you like to go? And why do you even ask for anything? You covet, but you can't get what you want. James continues in his letter. You, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you would enjoy a better financial 2020 than you've had in any other year in your life? Would that be okay? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be. Well, why do you need that? I'm just being honest. Why do you need it? I think every person in here has some mode of transportation or you wouldn't have been here today. Now, somebody might have picked you up. That's okay. You might have taken the bus here. That's okay. You might have even walked. But do you need a better financial year to improve your mode of transportation? Why? Do you need it because you, you fill in the blank? When you and I begin to think about this year and what we're trying to achieve, I want you to take a moment and stop and ponder why. 
Am I striving to achieve this? And if God isn't in the middle of it, and if there's not a reason that you're doing that so that God can be glorified, I'm going to ask you to consider this question. Why am I even doing this if it isn't for the glory of God? Why? John writes in his letter, 1 John, Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what, he, do what pleases Him. If you're in an adult class in the last, this week and last week, um, Doug has done a great job in presenting some information about how that loving God is in keeping His commands. We don't keep the commands of God without loving Him. And if we do keep the commands of God without love being involved in keeping the commands, it's basically an exercise in futility because it means nothing to God unless we love Him. Where is your heart? And how is it grounded when you consider the things that you want to do? And whose will are you really seeking anyway? John continues, this is a confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, not ours, according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked from Him. Now, I'm just going to offer this to you for your consideration to take home. Is John writing the truth? Or is he not? If we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked from Him. But how is that true if we're asking in accordance with His will? So where is God's will in the decisions and the desires of your heart? Where is God in what you want? It's a lady by the name of Christine Levine. She wrote a little essay. I'm going to read it for you because I think it's powerful. She closes her comments stating, If it's not good enough for you, it's not good enough for those in need either. Giving the best you have does more than feed an empty belly. It feeds the soul. She writes this. I was five years old when my mom took off with me to the coast. She said she needed a do-over. We were starting fresh with no belongings, no toys, no furniture. She said we had empty hands so that we could catch new blessings. We also had empty pockets, and she had no job. She drank our whole life away, and the booze had left us washed up in a tiny beach town called Rockaway, Oregon. She was hoping the ocean would catch her tears and loosen her chains. My mother loves the ocean. She's more herself when it is nearby. She believes that it sees and knows that it moves and feels. It inspires her in wonder and fear. She revels in the uncertainty that it could have become angry at any moment and takes lives at its will. To my mother, the ocean was God. She would say to me sometimes, don't you ever take it for granted, Chrissy. When you look at that ocean, remember, there's always something bigger than you. Respect her. Summer had just ended. 
and the quaint coastal town had begun to fold up, we found a small college, a cottage. Really, it was just a motel room with a kitchenette. We never said it was our home. To us, it was just number six. My mother paid the first month's rent. She enrolled me in kindergarten a block away and brought us a sack of potatoes and some ketchup. And we began our new life. I don't remember being excited about school. It seemed so frivolous, and I thought I should be getting a job. I could get a paper route, I told my mom one morning as we walked back to number six from the payphone where she'd called my dad, begging him to send the $75 support check. He promised he'd send it as soon as possible, but I knew the potatoes were running low. My mother looked for work, but the car we used to get to the town had broken down, and there were only two or three restaurants within walking distance of number six. She didn't want to get a job in a bar because she was trying earnestly to stop drinking. Maybe two weeks passed and still no child support check, no money at all. I sat at the kitchen table one night watching Walter Cronkite. Any of you remember Walter? He was delivering the evening news with his objectivity and journalistic integrity, and he said something like, here's the news at this supper time. And I remembered this because I was so surprised by it. His words were otherwise so dry, so metered, but his mention of it being dinner time was almost friendly. And I wondered if he could see us. How did he know it was time to eat? My mother was staring out the window with her back to me. I said to her, well, he's right. It is dinner time, right, Mom? I thought I was being clever and catching Cronkite's sincerity. She let out a sigh and without turning around, she said, do you see that out there? Those people have let their garden grow over. The cabbages have gone to seed. They never know or even care if I just snuck over there and took one for you. The quivering in her voice scared me. Looked so cool, I thought she might have even been mad at me. And she said, if I were a thief, I would go over there and steal those rotten cabbages for you. But I'm not a thief. Without another word, she passed me and walked out the front door of number six. She left it open and I followed her. She walked down five cottages and knocked on the door to number one. It was a larger cottage where an old man and woman lived. Even though they were our neighbors, we had no idea who they were. The old lady opened the door and I wove around my mother so that I could see. And my mom said, this is my daughter, Christine. We have no food. She's had nothing to eat but potatoes for a month and now we don't even have any of those left. I don't care about myself, but could you please give her something to eat? The old woman was kind of short and fat, with black hair twisting around her head. Her name was Anita Vanover. Her husband was a tall guy who they just called Van. I could see into their cottage. The table was set, and Anita and Van were obviously sitting down to eat. And the smells coming from inside made me drool. I don't remember Anita saying anything to my mother or even asking her husband first if she could give us something, but I remember her packing up her table, the pot roast and the carrots, 
and the gravy and the potatoes, and she handed it all to my mother. It turned out that the couple had friends who owned one of the restaurants where my mom had tried to get a job. Anita talked to them, and they hired her, and Anita and Van became my caretakers in the evening. They saved my mother and me. At that moment, though, I don't think Anita and Van thought they were saving our lives or forever changing the path of a child. I think they were doing what they were supposed to do when a woman with a little girl comes to the door and says she needs to eat. What more needs to be said or done? They probably figured that it's just food. Anita gave so effortlessly and so quickly that I doubt she ever thought about it again, but that one moment taught me a lesson about giving that I have never forgotten. There came a day 30 years later when I passed that lesson on to my own children. My daughter's school had a food drive and she was excited to collect food for it. Even at 10 years old, she had a strong sense of community. She wanted to be either a police officer so she could help people or an astronaut so she could protect the planet from wayward asteroids. We had to keep her from watching the news because it moved her to the point of tears. Her heart would break for the human condition. She went to our pantry to get food for the food drive, and she started bagging up the canned and the dried goods. All the while, she talked, oh, I'll put in the green beans. I don't like those. I'll save the Kraft macaroni and cheese, and we can give them the no-name brand. And I realized that my daughter, as generous and good as she already was, knew nothing about giving. Felt like I had taught her nothing. She didn't know about Anita and Van. She didn't know about number six. She didn't know that she could see the face of a hungry child if she just looked long enough at her own mother. And so I told her. I told her that my kindergarten teacher thought I was, quote, retarded, end quote, because I was so hungry that I didn't perform well in school and was always slower than the rest of the class. I told her that Anita could have just gone to her cupboard and made me a peanut butter sandwich, and my mother and I would have been so grateful, but she didn't. She gave the best she had. The biggest problem with poverty is the shame that comes with it. When you give the best you have to someone in need, it translates into something much deeper to the receiver. It means they are worthy. If it's not good enough for you, it's not good enough for those in need either. Giving the best you have does more than feed an empty soul, an empty belly. It feeds the soul. And here we are, the beginning of a new year, new beginnings, new ideas, new dreams, new goals, new places to go, new things to see, new incomes to be earned. But my question for us all is, are we giving our best to those who are around us? Because with all of my heart, I believe that if we're not giving our best in whatever it is, why should any of us expect anything from God?
It's not about getting. It's about giving. Jesus says greater has, nothing greater can be done than one would lay down his life for another. It's about giving. And regardless of what you want to accomplish this year, unless we're willing to give our very best first, I'm not sure we should expect much in return. So this morning, I want you to go home and really think about what it is that you want to do and the things that you claim that you want for you, for your family, for your work, for your friends, for this church. And I want you to see how you can give your very, very best. Because until we give our best, I'm not sure what's going to come back to us. Brandon is going to come and lead us in a song. And as we sing this song, I invite you to consider your walk with God. And I ask, if you have a reason for us to pray with you that you would come before this church this morning, let us pray with you. The greatest thing you could ever give is your life. The greatest way to begin walking with God is to give your life to Him. That means giving up everything. That's giving your very best. If you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, today is the first Sunday of 2020. Why don't you start the new year with the best, giving your best to God. Let's stand and sing this song.